and what I want to talk about tonight is winning. Um, and I don't mean winning for winning's sake, I mean winning for things that matter, um, like rebuilding working class power and trying to rebalance what's a disgustingly imbalanced um, power equation uh, here um, and obviously uh, below the border. Um, and last I looked, the forces of good, the progressive forces, uh, pretty much all over the place, um, are in trouble. And we've been losing a lot. Um, and as an organizer and chief negotiator, and I've run political campaigns and whatever, fill in the blank, um, I, definitely, I definitely don't like losing. Um, I try never to do it. I'm actually not being facetious about this either. Like, I try really hard not to lose. Um, I think sometimes we get over-celebratory about, like, the valiant fight, and we're not focused enough on what it actually takes to win the fight. Um, and I'm pretty obsessed about actually winning. Uh, because I don't think, I mean, valiant fights, you know, sometimes we don't always win. You know what I mean? We don't always win. Um, but I think the more attention to detail and the more thought we put into um, what's it going to take to win, the stronger the chances are that we have of winning. Um, and again, I think, I think every fight I've ever gotten into with lots of working class folks, whether it was as a community organizer or whether it was as a trade union organizer or whether I was running a political campaign straight up for some combination of the two, I don't feel like anyone getting into it on the front end thought, hey, we're here to lose. Um, so I want to share with you some of the things that matter to me when I think about winning um, and how to do it. So just a little bit about my background. I grew up in a super serious union family. Um, this is sort of a collage of what my childhood represented. Uh, my father was a carpenter's uh, union leader uh, turned um, politician. Um, and I was the daughter who was, you know, helping him get elected. Um, and that's me um, as a little girl. I was on the back. That was a bumper sticker on the back of, you know, whatever, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of cars. There are many versions. I'm going to spare you. That's just one of them. Um, but we did everything in our house. You know, we were down with every boycott. Um, when the, my father was in public office by the time I was born. I was the youngest of nine. Uh, my mom died when I was little um, from cancer. And so he wound up just dragging me around to everything. And I think retrospectively I realized that learning how to win had to do a little bit with being raised in a house with a very controversial, politically sort of left or progressive political father. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I asked this question again in this room. I love asking this question. Except if you were there this morning. You can't answer. Anyone know what that flag on the top left is? What's your hand? I think No, not that one. Good guess, though. The one below it is, for sure. Definitely. That's the, that's the red lettuce. That's the Chavez one, for sure. But the one on the top, that's, it's just so, I mean, this would happen in the U.S. too. It's not a U.S.-Canada issue, I don't believe. It's just old. Um, but I want to I stitch it together as a concept with my new uh, Winnipeg Labor Council water bottle that I'm proudly going to carry everywhere. Um, because it was, the, it was the 1970 Earth Day flag from the very first Earth Day. And those used to be popular flags once upon a time. We don't actually believe in science anymore in the United States. And I know that you didn't when Harper was in power either. So welcome back to Science Canada. We're trying to catch back up to you. Yeah. Um, so and Angela Davis and whatnot. So I mean, I grew up in a house that was um, progressive, radical. I was uh, really spent a disproportionate amount of time for a little girl on picket lines because my father was the kind of politician who, when labor put him into office, he went down, all the way down, uh, on behalf of the cause of labor. Um, and the UAW strike at a place called the Ford Mawa plant, a massive plant, 
um, in Mawa, New Jersey, which is just over the border. A lot of the workers lived uh, in New York, even though they drove over the state border and um, worked in the Ford Mawa plant. But the UAW and a really massive strike, two, two strikes that happened there in 67, I don't remember, 69, I remember just being left on the picket line for days on end because I had a dead mother and a father who wasn't sure what to do with me. So um, he would either park me on picket lines and leave me there as like just, you know, to have fun with the guys or whatever. Um, or he would just park me in the Carpenters Union Hall. And when I was little, I, I mean, I'm the youngest of nine, but I did used to think I had like hundreds of brothers because like all these guys in the Carpenters Hall like called me their brother. It's very confusing. Um, so suffice to say, I, came, I come from a strong trade union house that also believed in winning in the workplace and winning in politics and winning in general. Um, and the campaigns were often quite controversial. So it's a little bit about my um, background. I started out, for people who don't know, sort of as a student organizer. Then I dropped out of school, so I was no longer a student to be a student organizer. Um, I was trained uh, sort of in a formal community organizing um, program when I was 17, Midwest Academy of Organizing. It was like an Alinsky, Saul Alinsky-ish. Uh, five-day training when I was quite young. I then went to work at a place called the Highlander Center, um, which is considered the founding, sort of in the central institution of the civil rights movement in the United States. That's what it's known about in the U.S. Interestingly, before it became known as the key center for the civil rights movement, it actually was the official education and training arm of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, of the CIO, of the more radical part of the American labor movement. So um, I spent a bunch of years thinking about worker education and how do we do mass popular and political education um, at the Highlander Center in the South. And then in the changes that happened in 1995 in the United States, which is when a bunch of progressives inside of a bunch of unions fought really hard for more progressive national leadership, um, and that's when I finally got hired in, and as I say, ended my formal rebellion. In my house, to rebel meant I didn't go work right for unions right away. I'm like, no, I grew up with all of them. I'm going to do something else, be a community organizer. So the truth is, when I, by the time I came back into working for the labor movement full time, um, I brought with me a lot of ideas, both from being a community organizer first uh, and relying on the power of what happened out in the broader community, not the workplace, and I also brought a lot of ideas from working at the Highlander Center about how do you do mass, part, mass participatory education, like how do we actually involve tens of thousands of workers um, in campaigns to lead their own salvation, not to be relying on staff. So um, what I'm going to talk about a little bit tonight, I'm going to draw on both books. The first book was Raising Expectations and Raising Hell. Um, and that is, you know, people who haven't seen it, it's basically a story. It's me just ranting, you know, for like 325 pages um, about both how to win, what's wrong with national unions, and a whole bunch of other things that I went on a rant about. But it's mostly a story about how to build unions and win in really difficult circumstances. But it's very much just me talking. There is pretty much, I think, not one single citation. So then I decided to go up to grad school where I was like, Bronwyn, how do I do a citation? For people who don't know, there's a woman here who I went to grad school with in New York. So, and I probably wouldn't have graduated if she wasn't in my statistics class. So um, that was a really helpful thing. But the second book, No Shortcuts Organizing for Power, is filled with citations. Um, and it essentially was my PhD dissertation. Uh, and it's a much sort of different book filled with case studies about every other good union work that was going on in the last decade or so in the United States. So I go from talking about my own campaigns to really having time for five years 
to sit in a PhD program and do something I had never done, which is A, sit still, um, and then B, actually read a lot of history and read a lot of literature and get to go look at other organizations' work to try and see the common patterns of what was working and what wasn't, right? I had a set of experiences from decades of organizing, and then I had time to try and figure out why were we losing sort of so much in the U.S. And what I learned, unfortunately, is it's not just um, in the U.S., unfortunately. Um, we have some very big problems. I won't leave that picture up long because it's so offensive. Um, uh, but I, I also just want to start by saying I'm not here because I think people in the U.S. have it together. Like that might be kind of obvious, but I just want to state the obvious. Um, I'm here because the unions that I was trained by and the unions I've always worked for, in fact, are a set of unions that are still winning, despite really stiff odds against them. Um, and I know now that besides that uh, orange-haired creep up there, you know, you've got this new guy, Brian, what's his name? Oh, thanks, yeah, just checking. Just making sure everyone's awake out there. Um, so, you know, like, there are winds of problems uh, here. I mean, there were winds of problems before, but they're definitely back, right? And we can smell them. We know that he's already taken a few actions that are giving us early clues into the coming austerity um, and into the coming divide and conquer among and between the working class, right? Pitting public sector union workers against everyone else. And we can see what's coming down the pike, and we're only a few months in. Um, so I'm definitely not here because I think the U.S. has it down. Uh, we obviously really don't. Um, but what we do have down is how to divide and beat up unions and make workers feel terrible. I'd say the U.S. is number one at this. Um, if you didn't see what this says, this is a cartoon from a campaign that I was involved in years ago. Um, and this was a front page editorial cartoon, and it was 2005, I think, um, in Las Vegas, Nevada. And if you don't get the cartoon, uh, it's supposed to be a big, lazy, uh, fat, you know, uh, public sector employee drinking cola. And a cola is the cost of living adjustments. Everyone knows what a cola is, right? The annual cost of living adjustments that we fight for and negotiate, which everyone thinks they just get for free, but anyway. Um, and the person up here who's supposed to be general public, Joe the general public, is saying, look at you sucking up colas, no wonder I'm broke. Everyone got the great mass political education. That was a front page editorial cartoon in the state of Nevada when I had just been hired um, to become the executive director of a very big public sector union. And I thought, well, oh, game's on. Um, so uh, yeah, so the US, what we're really good at, um, we're number one in austerity. We just don't call it that, but we've actually been doing it longer than anyone else. And um, we're really good at dividing workers and attacking workers and destroying unions. Um, so the question is, how are some of us still winning? And I want to share some of that with you um, tonight, if I can get off of that. Thanks, good. Um, so uh, in general, I want to talk about what I call principles and methods. I don't talk about models. I want to be clear about something else. Um, there's a lot of rhetoric, which I'll come back to in a minute, out of the US for a long time in the labor movement, something called the organizing model. Anyone here ever hear of the organizing model? Yeah, at least a few people. Um, so I don't want to talk about models necessarily, and I definitely don't want to do that as someone from the United States. What I do want to talk about are the principles behind the work we do and the methods that I think are effective. So principles are things like small U, small D union democracy. Like, do we actually believe that ordinary people are really smart um, and are capable of actually fighting their way out of the crisis that they're in? Um, if they're given some space to do it, some resources, um, and some opportunity and some good leadership. And that's a principle for me. In No Shortcuts, I open up the new book with 20 principles 
that I was taught as a young organizer called Advice for Rookie Organizers. And they include things like the working class builds cells for its own self-defense, um, find their leaders and organize them, basically, recruit their leaders. Uh, it says things like, we lose when we don't put workers into struggle. So there are 20 tenets at the beginning of the book, and I think the book is worth it just for the 20 principles that I came to live by that were sort of the equivalent of my Bible or my something um, as an organizer and still are. Um, and, and then there's a set of methods, and I want to talk about principles tonight, and I want to talk about methods, and then hopefully we'll have a really good discussion about it. So for me, a core concept is that we don't, we as ordinary people, we're not the elites, we're not the super rich, and we're not the corporate leaders, and thank God. Um, uh, the only strategic advantage that we have over people in power is our numbers. So for me, high participation is a prerequisite to power. It's not sufficient in and of itself, but it's definitely a prerequisite. If we can't generate really high participation, and by the way, sustain it over some period of time, um, then it's very, very hard for ordinary working people's organizations, whether that's unions or community groups or whatever, to actually build the kind of power that we need to either win elections, win a strong contract, take 100% strike, or many other things that rely on ordinary people power. So as an organizer, I feel like I've always understood that my ability to help generate high participation was going to have a direct uh, relationship to whether or not we could win. It's back to that winning concept, right? I'm, I believe in winning. Um, so I've never, I've never really had the pleasure of doing a hard campaign where we won it like a, by accident, you know, or we won it um, by coincidence or something. Like we won it because we fought it out um, and we had to build really high power and high participation to win it. So. The thing I want to talk about mostly tonight is this. It's what I call the conundrum. It's the conundrum. You already saw that first one. I feel like my entire life I live in a, uh, a problematic, like the dilemma or the conundrum or something that faces the movement. And here's what it's been for most of my um, entire life. We have a set of activist groups, generally, it's across countries, who tend to spend way too much time talking to ourselves. Um, or talking at people, which can be even worse than talking to yourselves, um, and who tend to lack some of the hard method that people who have run, let's say, 100% or even a 81% out strike or a big strike. To, to run a big strike, to be perfectly candid, there's a lot of methods involved. There's a lot of skill involved. Um, and there's a lot of skill involved in building high participation. And I'm going to talk about that tonight. Now, it's not rocket science. It's a skill I think everybody can do. All of you, all of us, everybody. But there is actually some skill involved in building and sustaining a really high participation organization. Um, so then we have unions, and in some unions there's some incredibly good methods and organizers and skills and negotiators and researchers, but we have another set of problems. Oddly, a lot of unions don't seem to believe in actual worker power anymore. That's a little bit confusing sometimes, but seems to be true in my experience. Um, some unions won't even contest for real power. Uh, they can get comfortable um, in a negotiating train or social partnership or any number of environments where it just feels safer to try and go in and get the deal and get out. Um, and generally, a lot of unions who are well-established can often be risk-averse, and for good reason, right? There's a lot to risk. So I don't, need, I don't need me to be oversimplifying about either of these general points. But my world, who, you know, I started as a young activist, and my world I feel like has, uh, I've toggled between struggling with these two dilemmas. And what we need, of course, is for a lot of activist groups to get the kind of skills that, some, that it takes to run a huge strike, 
Um, and the people who run a lot of organizations on the labor side, I'm hoping can become a little bit less risk averse um, or we're going to wind up like the United States and worse. And, and you know, the U.S. is, uh, not to be silly about it, there's a lot that's bad right now and there's tremendous division. And I'm guessing that we're already 15 years back, we're before the Obama administration already in terms of the rollback of most things that we gained. And I think if another six months goes by, we're, we're going to be about 15 to 20 years back in actual gains made by the movement. And that's um, not funny for those of us who've spent most of our life trying to win big changes. So that conundrum is a problem. In the U.S. labor movement, in the U.S. labor movement, I feel like the error, the thing I struggled with a lot in the last 20 years and wrote a lot about in No Shortcuts is a couple of things, a mistake we made. And partly I think that Things are so bad in the U.S., they're not as bad here, though there's plenty of problems here, right? We know that. There's plenty. There's many more uh, in the lower south. People have no idea that they're even standing on indigenous land in the United States. And I mean, it's not even a concept, let alone that we honor and try and speak to the basic rights. So we have a lot of problems in the lower, whatever, I say lower right from Alaska. We have a lot of problems um, in the U.S. Um, but in the labor movement specifically, I just want to tease this out for a minute. Part of what... Part of what there was in this thing called the organizing model, there were several mistakes made. I want to hit on a few of them. Um, one was that there was a big attempt at saying there's this thing called the organizing model, um, and they pit it inside of the labor movement, they pit it against something called servicing. You heard a lot about business unionism or servicing unions or organizing versus servicing. And as a trade union organizer and leader, I have to say to me it was always a false debate of sorts. Because if people are actually in a union, the choice to not service is not really a choice. The issue is, how do we think about, quote unquote, servicing? Are we actually involving lots of workers in, again, solving the problems they have at work? Or are we having a staff-centric model where some person goes and fixes problems for you, which actually isn't teaching people the most basic things they need to learn about how to fight their way out of the crisis that they're in? Um, so one of the big problems is that we had a lot of rhetoric about organizing, um, but what I think we actually did in the U.S. was what was I actually call mobilizing. It became a staff-centric movement um, where workers were largely trotted out as props at press conferences uh, for big decisions that were being made that they actually weren't involved in. So there was a rhetoric about organizing, and I think it actually wasn't organizing, and we'll talk about what I think um, organizing is. Um, we correctly assessed in 1995 and 1996 when big changes happened in the U.S. labor movement at the national, the level of the CFL, the AFL-CIO. Um, a bunch of unions correctly assessed that we needed additional leverage to win, that strikes were getting harder, that we had to be creative and think differently. Um, the problem is I'm arguing that we looked in the wrong place, and I hope you don't um, repeat some of these mistakes uh, up here. Um, and the place that we looked was to something called the corporate campaign, uh, which um, was determined to be sort of magic or something in the labor movement, and I'll, I'll talk more about that in a minute. And what the corporate campaign did was take our focus away from the workplace and take our focus away from workers, if you were in the trade union movement. I'm arguing that the corporate campaign centered the attention of most of the more progressive unions every place but workers in the workplace, and that that led in part 20 years later, 
um, to you know who, uh, to Trump. People who don't know the margins by which we lost the election were 77,000 votes in Pennsylvania, Ohio, um, and Wisconsin. That's like less than a couple of big workplaces, um, in my opinion. So the margins of the defeat were so small, and they were all within the union, what we call the union household vote. Um, so I think when we stopped engaging workers day to day inside the labor movement, and we stopped um, having workers at the center of the solutions to their own problems, and we turned to something called the magic of pollsters and communications people and lawyers um, and corporate campaigns and brand damage, um, it meant we stopped talking to workers in a serious way. Um, and that's a big mistake. And just to show it to you for a second, um, in the U.S., um, we essentially put the, the training model became that you put the employer in the middle, like that's in the middle dot, it just says employer, and then we were all got trained how to do brand damage campaigns and how to make the company look bad. And so you started to map the suppliers and vendors, um, customer service units for customer service campaigns, shareholders and executives for pension fights and shareholder fights. Uh, financial institutions could be protests outside a big bank and make them look bad for investing in company X who was firing their workers, whatever they were doing. You know, middle management, parent and subsidiary. So if you go around this, the entire debate inside the U.S. labor movement for 20 years became um, how can we more effectively run corporate campaigns? And the key thing I want to point out um, is this. This one box says it's workers and unions. And so in my opinion, in the trade union movement, workers became a one-twelfth part of the solution to the problems of the labor movement. And when workers get reduced to being one-twelfth of the strategy, you might get uh, Harper again, or worse, um, or Trump, um, because we just stopped talking to workers. So I say that again. So the things I want to talk about tonight, I'm going to run through a few concepts fairly quickly, and then I'll say them again. Um, there's five core themes, I think, that help us lead to winning versus losing um, and building high participation. The first concept is leaders versus activists. The second is building to majorities. So if you see majority-minority up there, I certainly don't mean minority in the way it's sometimes used in the U.S. as in people of color or something. I mean numerical numbers. So building campaigns that involve majorities of people versus minorities. Um, structure versus self-selecting. Whole worker versus community labor coalitions. And then it all adds up to something that I call organizing versus mobilizing. Um, the things I'm going to talk about tonight are not new. I want to be really clear about that. They are so not new. The methods that I learned as a trade union organizer, I can trace, now that, I've, now that I did a PhD and read a lot of history books, I can trace half at least of what I was taught directly back to the methods that were winning in very difficult times, which is the times we had the last great inequality, which was the 1920s and 30s in the U.S., right after the Great Recession. So the CIO of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, um, I began to find all sorts of training manuals from the 1930s. This is one called Organizing Methods in the Steel Industry. And as I began to read the manual called Organizing Methods in the Steel Industry, I realized, holy crap, that's exactly what I'm doing in hospital organizing today in the United States of America. So I didn't invent this stuff. I'm just sharing it with you. Um, so the, the, the first concept, activists versus leaders, is crucial. And I argue that who does the work 
frankly, is as important as what the work we're doing is. And that's the idea that we need to have ordinary people actually empowered to get the work done. So activists are people who are, we're probably all activists, including me, right, in this room. Um, we're already convinced about our causes, right? Like we believe passionately that we need all sorts of societal change. Uh, we have some common shared values in here um, against racism. We want to save the planet. We want workers to have good justice, fill in the blank. So activists are already with us. Um, and part of what I'm arguing is that even with social media and the technology of turnout, if we don't actually go and spend much more time trying to engage vast majorities of people who are not coming to activist meetings, we're not going to win again. Right? So activists are with us already. The problem is if we just keep talking to ourselves, we don't have the numbers to win. Um, versus what I call sort of the vast undecideds. There are millions of people, there are even hundreds of thousands who went to the Jets game. Can you imagine that instead of coming here? I mean, I don't know why. Um, I'm kidding. I'd like to be at the Jets game. But um, uh, I'm kind of into the Jets. But anyway, so, um, but there are many more people out there um, who don't come to our meetings. And if we put a note on Facebook that says, come to an urgent meeting about blah, 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 they're not coming. They're what I call the vast undecideds out there in society that we've got to win over if we want to both retake um, this province, for people who don't look like Brian um, and who don't want to roll back uh, and roll into austerity, um, we have to engage way more people as a progressive movement than we're engaging right now. And so I want to talk about some methods of how. To me, I write a lot about, I think a lot about, I only write about it because I did it and I do it, something called the organic leader. So I'm going to touch on each of these five concepts and then just stop and we'll get into some discussion about them. But first, it's understanding um, what an organic leader and an organic leader approach to the work is versus an activist and an activist approach. Um, and developing the muscle to identify organic leaders, whether it's in, the, in a non-workplace um, campaign or whether it's in a workplace campaign. Um, I think that if the, principle, if the principle is we want to involve majorities of people, if the principle is we want to involve majorities, then the method we have to think hard about is something called organic leader identification. It's about how do we find the set of people who are well-respected already in the workplace by their coworkers, in the broader community by their neighbors, by the people they sit with in church, mosque, synagogue, whatever it is, any structure they're in. They're well-respected by people around them. Because if we can find them and identify them, and certainly we have methods to do it in the workplace and in structure-based organizing, which I'll move to in a minute, if we can find those people who already naturally, they have no titles, these are not people with positions or titles, they're just out there. Um, and they can bring many more people with them. Uh, but my experience is we actually have to go find them. Um, because they tend not to be just voluntarily coming to all of our meetings. So the key about how do we scale up and build huge, powerful movements, and in the labor movement, how do we scale up to something like, for real, 100% outstrike? Um, I was just involved in 100% outstrike. That's super fun. I know you didn't read about it in the headlines here. I'm sorry. But um, I don't even think they had generated headlines in the state we were in, because you know, the media doesn't talk about 100% out worker strikes. Um, but some of us are still engaging in them. So. I think that there's a method, and that there's a method to finding the organic leaders, and part of the method is what we call organic leader identification, and we use something called structure tests to do it. So um, let me run into those next concepts and show you a couple of pictures. So by structure-based organizing, um, a structure is uh, certainly a workplace, most workplaces, though in the gig economy, 
that actually feels a bit more like community organizing in some ways, right? But so hold the gig economy concept for a minute. Structure, I just want to tease this out. Structure-based organizing versus self-selecting. A structure is a workplace, a church, a temple, a mosque, a housing complex, a riding, a neighborhood, a school, a university, some place where the same number of people show up every day and relate to each other sort of over and over and are in relationship, and it's a defined number of people. That's a structure, and that leads to what I call structure-based organizing. Then there's something called self-selecting, what I just called, because you know I had to make up a name for it in the book, self-selecting organizing, which is characterized by a lot of single issues um, and single issue, what I call single issue fights. Um, most environmental groups, not all, but most environmental groups would be self-selecting. Most women's organizations are. Most single issue fights of any kind occupy Wall Street, a lot of worker centers, fill in the blank. Um, and by self-selecting, I mean just that. In the old days, it was put up a flyer and people come. And today, it means you tweeted about a meeting or you Facebooked about it and people showed up. So they self-selected into the work that you're doing. They just came because they wanted to come, because they're already with us. That's an activist-based model, fundamentally, or an activist-based approach to the work. In structure-based work, if we want to win something, we actually can't just rely on who shows up at the meeting. And herein starts to become the method to structure-based organizing. If I'm working with a thousand workers in a hospital fight with a bunch of workers, um, and we want to get, we want to win a really strong contract, we have to get a thousand people ready to walk out on the employer. And most of them are not coming to our meetings when we start, right? So the question is, what do we do if they're not coming to the meetings? You've got to find them and get them somehow. Or you're not going to actually get to 100% out strike. So that, if you just extrapolate that out into society, people who do politics know, you know, if you want to win a riding, you've got to get more votes than the other person gets. But actually, interestingly, in something like a political race, you just have to get more than the other. In an actual workplace strike in the United States, you really have to get north of 90% to 95% out to win. Um, and that means you've actually got to go find every single person in the structure to do it. So um, there's nothing wrong with the single issue groups, like we need a lot of them, but I'm trying to figure out how do we build more power faster, and I'm arguing it's in structure-based organizing. So I want to walk you through a couple of pictures here on concept, and then keep moving through basically a bunch of pictures um, and talk about what they mean and what they are. So this is a big wall chart. People who came to a couple earlier sessions today would have seen the big wall chart. Um, and if you weren't in a session of mine today, is there anyone here who actually works in campaigns where they use big handmade wall charts? Oh, awesome. I love that. There's a few hands up. That's great. Um, so quickly, and this is where I feel like I want to walk, and that guy with the video camera apparently doesn't really want me to walk, but um, it's very hard for me to stand still. But essentially, this is a big wall chart, and wall charts can work for housing-based organizing, for workplace-based organizing, for anything where there's actually a defined structure. Um, and we start, so this is Einstein, I'm going to talk about one hospital um, that we were involved in a huge campaign and fight that the workers won last year. Um, and this is what's called SICU, the Surgical Intensive Care Unit. It's one unit in a big hospital. Um, and that's Einstein. And the way you make a big wall chart if you're doing structure-based organizing is you put all the names of the workers in every department onto a big wall chart like this. Um, and then you start trying to figure out which workers have more influence over the workers compared to other workers. 
So that's what we call a leader, an attempt at building a leader-based, an informal, natural leader-based model versus an activist model where we just rely on, please come to our union meeting, and we spend all of our time talking to whoever shows up at our meeting. A different approach is that we need to go find a way to be in conversation with every single worker in every single department throughout the entire workplace. And fill in the blank, if it's a public housing fight, you know, if it's church-based organizing, any place where there's a structure, you can use the same kind of basic method, put all the names up and figure out how do we know if we're reaching everybody? How do we actually know if everyone's getting involved in the campaign? So in this one, I'll just give you a few examples of what we're showing. If they have a blue dot next to their name, it means that they signed the union authorization card to have a vote. If they have a green dot next to their name, it means that they signed what's called a public vote yes petition, saying I'm going to vote for the union, and it's a big public petition, and it's going to go right to their employer, and in the U.S. people are terrified to sign them because they'll take out a magnifying glass, and they actually will start looking for your signature, and workers know that. So it's a bit of a high threat. We're starting to move up a high threshold test of what I call a structure test. Do we have tight structure? And having a tight structure means have we identified the organic or the natural leaders in every single unit in a big workplace fight, or if it's a public housing fight to save housing, or stop the gentrification of a neighborhood, or again, fill in the blank. But I'm going to talk mostly for workplace um, uh, examples, because that's mostly what I'm embedded in. What I found and I argue in the, in the book No Shortcuts is I think this plays out across every kind of fight there is. It's just easier to identify organic leaders if you're doing what we call structure-based organizing. So just hear me that it is not just workplaces, but I'm going to walk you through it, mostly through a workplace example. So, um, so that's all the workers' names up there. Okay, then the red dot means that they signed a public petition demanding that the boss come to negotiations, because, you know, in the United States, just because you win the union don't mean you get a contract. You know what I mean? Then they just tried to kill you a different way. So this boss was filing lawsuits against us, contesting the election. He didn't care that we won the election. He basically pledged in public there would never be a union, even though the workers voted overwhelmingly for the union, because they started filing legal charges called official objections to the election. Uh, accusing us of rigging the election. And in the United States, they do that for five years at a time, all the workers leave, it's done, and there's no union. So this is a very normal thing we go through. And if you're an organizer, you understand you're not going to leave this fight to the lawyers. No way. Because if you leave it to the lawyers, you're not going to have a union, because in five years, all the workers are gone. Okay. So um, this is a big, really hard fight last year, and a really great fight. So all of the things up there are what I call a structure test. And I'll show you structure tests in a minute. But by structure tests, I mean... Are most of the workers in the unit participating in whatever the activity was, or are hardly any of the workers participating? It's called the structure test. We want to actually know are most people participating or not. Yellow over their names, we're already in the first contract fight here. We've won. If there's yellow highlight over their names, it means they've now signed a union membership card. For people who don't know, um, the surgical intensive care unit, uh, it's a pretty rock star unit. They're doing great. They're well organized, and it's because we've identified the organic leaders, and you can see little teeny black dots next to Patrick in the middle column, and then next to Kathy in the over here. Um, so who the leader is is not a secret. That's very, very important. We don't do secret organizing. We don't do secret anonymous organizing. We do everything as public, transparent, because my job as an organizer who doesn't live in Philadelphia and am long gone from this hospital is to teach the workers themselves how to build power. And teaching the workers means here's what a wall chart is, Here's you're going to learn whether or not the coworkers who you're working with are actually engaged in the campaign or not, right? To win a really good contract, you have to build a really powerful worksite structure, and you've got to have high unity. When I signed up at a worker meeting, I said you've got to do two things to win. 
You've got to build a really effective structure inside the workplace. You yourselves have to do it. In our country, if the staff go near a private sector facility, we're arrested, so that's kind of useless. I always say to young organizers, if you get arrested, I'm going to fire you because we think it's cool when we're young or something to like have the wee, 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 here comes the thing. No, you don't get arrested. It's, it's not a really good thing for a bunch of workers who have just formed a union to watch the young staff getting arrested, so I digress. But um, sometimes you have to check the militancy for, in the, like for winning. So we can't even go in is my point which means in, we've learned this method because the campaigns in the U.S. have to be run by the workers. They have to be worker-led because you literally can't go in the building until you get arrested if you're me um, in the private sector. In the public sector, maybe you can sneak around until they figure out who you are and then they drag you out. You know, you can blend in with the public a little bit, but um, most of my life is in the private sector. Remember, healthcare in the U.S. unfortunately is the private sector. So um, we can't go in. And part of why I think we've gotten really good at the method, those of us who are still doing it, is in fact because the workers have to lead really hard fights. And they're alone at work every day with a mean boss over them. So my job as an organizer is to teach them how to do it. I'm teaching workers how to do it. We don't learn in, at least in my country, in basic elementary school and high school, sorry to say, we don't learn, uh, we don't have classes called how to beat the boss in negotiations. We don't have classes that are called how to make your democracy actually work. We don't learn a basic curriculum that's called how do you do it. So when I go back to that conundrum about activists versus traditional unions sometimes, you know, there's, there's sometimes a thing that like, Workers don't need any help from anyone, or they don't need any professional staff, and I think that's insane. If you've been to the United States, I just want to say right now, it's a crazy thought, because the workers at Einstein who are absolutely amazing, who could fix my body, sew me up, operate on me, heal me if I had a car crash, have no idea how to build a worksite structure until we actually explain it to them. And once we explain it, they're off and running, right? They actually know what to do. But a little bit of coaching is actually really important in a tough union fight. So. This is the surgical intensive care unit. All those things you see up there are structure tests and the workers themselves are learning that they've got to build a really effective structure to beat their boss. Um, that's labor and delivery. You can see it's a little bit less well organized. Uh, if you're looking closely, then SICU, this unit is tight. We got the organic leaders and the organic leaders in that unit are moving everything. They're moving vote yes petitions. They're moving eventually strike votes. They're moving everything. Um, and I don't, none of the organizers, no staff have to do anything at SICU except talk to the two organic leaders who are in SICU um, and talk to them about where we are in the campaign and involve them in the meetings to make the plan for the campaign. So um, then you go to labor and delivery. You see pockets there where there's actually nothing happening. It's a little bit problematic. But what I want to cut to quickly for you is that unit, same time period. What's happening in that unit? I heard what? what? What's happening in there? Yeah, and what else? Someone said not much, right? Do those charts look different? Okay, so this is the visual about teaching workers how to build structure. My job as an organizer is to teach workers how to build powerful structures themselves and win. So it's very obvious if you walk into a big meeting, like a meeting like this with all the workers at shift change at 7.30 p.m. coming off the day shift at Einstein, and we have all the charts are on the walls and all the workers are walking in, and they can immediately themselves understand that they got a big frickin' problem in the telemetry unit, which is a big unit with 66 workers in it, because no one was participating in the unit. And to be clear, this was a victory lap uh, picture because the amount of yellow highlight over their name, this picture happened the day after the previously anti-union leader flipped to becoming pro-union finally, and she herself did something no staff person I've ever met in a union could do, which is she walked in and in about an hour and a half total, 20 minutes 
at night and about an hour in the morning, uh, signed up more than half of her coworkers to be for the union in a tough union fight. No union staff person could do what the organic leader did. So our task is to find them and help them and coach them and teach them how to build their own strong workplace structure. Because uh, in fact, I'm not a nurse at Einstein. And as you can tell, I'm not there, I'm in Winnipeg. So, but these workers have a hell of a union now. They've built a hell of a union for themselves. And they did it in part because we taught them what it means to build high unity and a really tight structure. And that's what it means. So um, that is a bunch of the workers sitting in a big worker meeting, actually in negotiations, working together on their charts. There's a beautiful moment in a worker campaign where if we start with some workers, a small activist core who want to build a union or want to have a good contract or want to win a strike or want to win an election or fill in the blank. We'll start with the small activist core of workers, of course, because activists are essential. And it's the activists who are going to go figure out how to recruit, find, recruit, and identify the organic leaders. Um, and there's a beautiful moment in the campaign where they just start to own their charts. They're their charts. Like, we don't touch them anymore. Like, they walk in, they're like, get away from my chart. I got a bunch of stars and dots and things and colors and get away. So that was happening at this point already. The workers were like, yeah, that is my department and my chart. Um, and as an organizer, I just start smiling and sometimes crying, actually, when the workers take control of their charts, because it means the workers now are owning their union. Um, so that's a bunch of them uh, in negotiations and a break working on their charts. So what are those structure tests? I just want to show you a few pictures. We're going to mostly pictures now. Um, pictures and a few stories, uh, and then we'll get into a discussion. So that's an example of a structure test. In my view as an organizer, I say life is a structure test. I am never not involved in running a structure test at any moment ever. If I'm building to a contract fight, a strike, or trying to win my precinct or my riding in a big election, whatever it is, um, I am engaged in a nonstop series of structure tests when I'm working on a, a serious fight uh, to win something or to build something. Um, I really do think life is a structure test as an organizer. At Einstein, at the hospital that you saw, if you went and talked to any of those thousand uh, nurses right now and they said, what do you remember most about Jane? I'm not sure exactly what they'd say first because it might be various things like what a pain in the ass or wow, that was a great contract fight. But they would definitely say, holy crap, don't tell me it's time for another structure test. Like, that is all we did. The minute you finished one structure test, you rolled straight into the next one. Because every time you're trying to figure out, can you get... Can you first get a majority of people participating in the structure? And then this threshold moves to, can you get a supermajority? And then the threshold moves to, can you get to 100% participation throughout every single unit in a small or a big workplace? Because when you can get to 100%, that's really good. Then the question becomes, how fast? A tight structure means how fast. When we're in tough employer campaign and getting ready to strike, the boss has department managers, all sorts of bosses, communications people, control of the email system, and the boss is moving their message in five seconds. And I say to workers, if we can't move our messages as fast as the boss can, the boss is going to beat us. So building a tight structure means you've got to identify the organic leaders, then you've got to help them figure out how to do wall charting and some kind of system that they learn themselves for what it means. And then, and then it means that instead of it taking... Uh, when we did this one, that's an 8,000 person public sector unit. There's about 5,000 in small, low change on there. That was their first ever majority hand signed petition. No internet allowed in these campaigns, no social media. I mean, none of that stuff. So this is about building actual structure. If you are thinking that you want to get it to the point where there's 100% of workers walking out, you've got to do an endless set of structure tests to get yourself ready to know whether or not it's possible and when it's possible so that we Win. Thanks. That was great. Winning in Winnipeg. That's just great. Um, so on this one, it took us 
um, just about two months to do this. So when it was done, this exhausting process of trying to get 5,000 signatures by hand, testing the people we thought were organic leaders, could they get the majority of signatures in their workplace, their unit, their department, their whatever. These workers were scattered all around um, greater Las Vegas in like 59 different workplaces. So it was a bit of a task, right? But that's our task if we want to win and do big stuff and beat austerity and beat the people who are trying to ruin everything. So in this one, I said to the workers, okay, that took almost two months for you to actually beat the boss. In this case, the boss was coming for their pension, actually to end the entire pension and turn it into a 401k. So the stakes were high in this fight. And I said to the workers, when you can replicate that and do it in five days and not eight weeks, you're getting close to being able to beat your boss. So a tight structure and high unity is what we need to win the hardest fights. Um, so life is a structure test. There they are. They're about to march on their CEO. I'll just show a few of them. I want to show you this one because the key is that we start to escalate. So first it's can we, can we get just as many signatures or just as many photos done in, in a shorter and shorter period of time. It means we're getting our structure really effective and really efficient. It means workers are building subcommittees and subcliques of leaders. In the emergency department at Einstein, there was one top leader, Peg Lawson, and no kidding, this woman at Einstein, when she would come into the evening shift change meeting, she would walk in with like, they were like her lieutenants. Like six other workers, all in scrubs, they were all exhausted, blood on their you know, they just come from the emergency department. Um, and Peg would like get to her table, we'd make a decision about the next thing we we're going to do, what's the next structure test. And I would watch Peg take out their wall chart and then assign whole sections of, the, of a 100-person of unit, essentially, to her lieutenants. And together they went out and just got the work done, right? And if I said it had to get done in two days... They were like, okay, two days, we can do it in the ED, right? That's like building a really tight structure of workers who are actually learning how to build a really tight structure. So this is increasing the risk threshold. When you go from hand-signed petitions, for example, to a photo poster, that's an even scarier thing for a lot of workers to do because you're going to march it on the CEO, and now the boss knows, well, for sure, if I missed your signature, I see your face, right? Like you're outed. And fear is huge in every campaign. So um, that's what a supermajority photo poster looks like. Um, with 80% of the workers on it. I keep going like that, and it's right in front of me. Um, uh, and then I'm not going to, I just want to give you a sense of them. They're just endless, okay? They're endless when I'm running a big campaign. That's the nurses completing their first majority structure test. They're about to march it to the CEO, a whole group of activists, and about 25 security guards came about a second after I took that picture. Um, and off they were, ready to march on their CEO for the first time ever and make a demand of him and not just, like, do the work and make the money for him. Um, so another structure test for me I just want to share is negotiations. Um, and this is a picture of me with about 125 workers in negotiations. I want to say a few things about negotiations and then I want to keep rolling. But I believe that negotiations are structure tests. My goal in collective bargaining is to get every single worker in an enemy facility to walk into negotiations at least once, every worker at least once. Um, and yes, we elect big committees, and there's a whole process to that. But literally our goal is if we want workers to understand what the union is, we want them to actually come to negotiations, even if it's for an hour. We don't say to them, come, take the whole day. We don't say, you know, you're not getting paid. In the big open structure test called big open negotiations that we like to do, no one's getting paid to be sitting there, to be perfectly clear. You can't say to the boss, we want the right for every worker to walk in and then expect to be paid. So um, I always forget to say that, but these are always all unpaid negotiations because the workers have decided it's their fight and they're going to win it. Uh, and we want every single worker to come through at least once. It doesn't happen always, but that's, that's the principle, is we want all the workers to come. Um, and these are all just lots of pictures of negotiations. And we set out, and they'll have a little dot on the chart, like did they have, have they actually come to negotiations once for at least an 
hour becomes a structure test for us. Do the managers, the line managers, the CEOs, and the negotiators for the boss see the workers coming into negotiations? Um, those are structure tests for us. That's the same hospital I keep going back to, that's Einstein, when we finally got to negotiations this year. Um, I like to throw that one in for fun, because a lot of people here, certainly if you read my book, but even if you didn't, a lot of people here know about the Chicago Teachers Union strike, which is one of the strikes I profile in No Shortcuts. Um, and this is one of their structure tests. That's Karen Lewis in the front. There's 7,000 teachers in that room, and they had to fill that three times to know whether or not they were ready for a strike. And they filled that room three times in one day, and they knew they were ready to beat the bosses. Uh, and beat them, did they? So. Just going into the last few comments, um, the last sort of core concept before I close on organizing versus mobilizing um, is something called whole worker organizing that I also believe very deeply in. Uh, this is me sort of talking back to the corporate campaign design that you saw early on. Um, and for me, I made it look like the corporate campaign thing, uh, just to be a punk, I think, when I was doing my dissertation. <laughs> just to be honest, I was so sick of the corporate campaign math. Um, that's everywhere. It's so pervasive in the U.S. So in this one, instead of putting the company in the middle and all those little things and subsidiary and all that, when I look at a worker, and I think this helps because of my community organizing roots, but when I started to do work in the trade union movement, I never understood. I never understood why all we ever did was talk about workers at work. It never made sense to me. Um, because I understood from running community-based campaigns that I'd been involved in a lot of campaigns where people who weren't um, working through their workplace fights were winning a lot of very big things, like stopping toxic pollution from running into their neighborhood or any number of campaigns that we worked on. Um, so immediately when I came into the trade union sector, back to the trade union sector sort of home, um, I looked at every worker as a whole person. Um, and I didn't want to just chart the first thing you saw, which is charting the relationships of who knows each other at work. That's fundamental in a workplace fight, workplace charting. And then the next thing we do in phase two of the campaign to beat uh, the public messaging that often comes at us very effectively in the community that helps make people in the general public say, well, of course we should have a pay cap in Winnipeg and Manitoba because, you know, those government workers make too much money. So to not let that happen, I like to recognize that actually most workers, unless they're super, super poor, and we know we have them, right, some people actually uh, don't have a home. So if you're homeless, this doesn't count. But most workers actually go to a home. They leave work and they go home, they live in a community, and they have a whole series of things that affect them really negatively in the broader community, and that's a problem. So when I see a worker, I see a whole person. And I always do. So the second part of charting that we do very methodically once we've charted the workplace relationships is we start to chart every single worker's broader connections in the community. Um, and in this, just the lines, just to say some of them, if they're small, on top it says, like, where do their kids go to school? And I don't mean just for school teachers, I mean for any worker, like, do their kids go to school? Because that's another structure um, where the parents come together on parent-teacher nights and meet each other and, do all the, and the kids play together and, okay, you know, bus stops, whatever. So um, who's their spouse? If they have a good relationship, by the way, which we don't all, you know, but if you do, you can actually often chart their spouse's relationships to the broader community, too. That's that bubble up there. Um, what faith? Uh, do they belong to a faith of some kind, mosque, church, synagogue, whatever? We chart that. Um, are they on a, a curling team? My favorite word to say in Canada. Um, do they curl? I don't even know what that is, but someday I'm going to learn. Um, uh, but in our case, it'd be like, are they on a little league team? Do they play baseball on the weekends or whatever? So, you know, so are the parent, is the worker themselves on a team and participating? Because boy, teams are super solidarity already, and you could bring your whole team into the fight. Um, uh, do they know any really local level politicians? Um, are they active in social media? 
do they belong to a second union? Because in our case, low-wage workers really usually have two because they do two, two full-time jobs. Are they in another union where they can have some connections that way? Are there kids on a sports team? Oh my God, how much time parents spend sitting with a bunch of parents at the sports games and never decide to bring up the contract fight? Just saying. Um, so children's sports teams, um, you know, knitting clubs, uh, local businesses that people, that workers frequent. Who's their immediate neighbors? Who's their aunt, uncle, grandma, blah, 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 blah. So I want to look at a worker in a tough fight and say, I want to figure out every single relationship that you have, because it's going to take every single relationship that you have to win the toughest fight. Um, and then we systematically begin to chart the workers' relationships. Um, and the concept here is, if you build a strong union at work, you should also build a strong union at home. And a union is often the strongest organization that a lot of people have. So in my mind, I never understood why we sort of self-sorted that we only worked on workplace issues as workers with workers in the workplace. When, when a worker leaves their job and goes home, they got a bunch of problems. I never understood why we just sort of saw workers as workers and not as whole people. And that's Marie Pierre and Joan Fang. Um, and I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about um, their fight, but I just want to use them as a metaphor. The housing development they were standing in front of is called Oak Park. I write a lot about this, so you can you know, read more about this fight if you want. Um, but when I say whole worker versus sort of a labor community alliance, um, the nexus of it is this. Um, in the approach that we take in the U.S., the first thing we do is organize workers and teach them how to build a strong workplace structure and win at work. And then they're red hot. They're incredible leaders at that point. They have a lot of skill, um, and they can carry that skill into every other fight in their lives. And so we want to suggest that there's a whole lot of other fights that the working class needs to win to have a strong working class. In this case, we were organizing in Stanford, Connecticut, and Marie Pierre and Joan Fang came into negotiations. We had, they, had just formed a, they had just formed a union at work, just formed a union. This is 20-something plus years ago. They had just formed a union. They came into negotiations it's because we believe in open negotiations, so intrauded me, Pierre, to negotiations one day. And in passing, in the back of the room, she handed me, a young organizer, a long letter that was finely typed and asked me if I could figure out what the hell it said because it was put under her door at home. And make a long story short, I couldn't even figure out, but plus I was trying to you know, work on negotiations. I'm like, we'll get right back to you on this, like tomorrow. And I handed it to our lawyers and said, would someone read this thing and tell me what it is? Um, and the lawyers came back and said, oh, it's, it's laying out the beginning of the process um, for the demolition of their housing complex. Because it's going to be gentrified, knocked over, and turned into single young white male rich housing. Um, which last I looked, we've been building a lot of in high, cute to live places in America. So, um, but we didn't have time, it's, again, it's too long a story, but we didn't really have time to work on the campaign to save the housing. But we started to figure out we really didn't have a choice because what was the point of winning a union contract if all the workers just had their housing demolished shortly thereafter and couldn't afford to live in the city anymore? So what we did do is we took all the tough workplace leaders, we began to figure out what other workers lived in the Oak Park housing development. It's a pretty big development. Um, and it's a beautiful place. You can see why the rich people wanted that neighborhood. Um, the housing was in fairly good shape, quite frankly. So it was a good visual to start an anti-gentrification fight on. It was like, it's all like one and two bedroom unit, whatever. So beautiful place. And you can see a little bit of a couple of the staff hanging out right there. It, and what we began to do was train all, so we said to the worker leaders, the charts you made, go make them in the housing complex. You need to go chart every single part of the housing complex, figure out who lives in what unit, and start testing your assumption about who's going to lead who out to big meetings in the housing complex. And in short, which is why I talk about principles and methods, in short, those workers then went and led a what became a massively successful anti-gentrification campaign and stopped the demolition of six 
huge public housing developments with thousands of people in them that were all slated for being bulldozed, um, and they were never bulldozed. Um, and the unions went on a crusade that became a joint crusade to both organize more unions and stop the gentrification plans of the city owners. And there was lots of controversies on the way, but part of what happened in that campaign is that you know, when the bosses are playing the unions are bad, unions are greedy, unions are self-interested message, having labor so deeply embedded in a very profound fight in the broader community didn't just change the image of who labor was. We actually won 31 National Labor Relations Board elections off of this housing fight because we first built a relationship to the working class in an immediate fight that mattered to every single one of them in that city. And once we began to win the housing fights, people were going, damn, I want one of these at work. So I've been sent there to organize workers. And in the end, after a lot of fighting with my lovely union leaders, who I love, actually all of them, um, in this case, we had blood-curdling blood fights, like screaming at the top of our lungs about whether or not it was appropriate for unions to work on the housing issue, because it wasn't a union issue. And I was like, OK, well, Marie Pierre lives in that housing complex, and she just formed a union. So like, let's break this wall down and go back to building powerful big social movements that are couched in powerful structure-based organizations. But the key thing was, sent there to organize unions by the National AFL, CIO, and Coalition with a bunch of unions, I stumble into realizing we've got a huge housing crisis and a mayor who's going to gentrify the entire city and sort of intuitively understand that unions have a bad name in that whole region, that we had very low union density, and that if we could win and show working class folks how to build a fight that they were going to win in their housing development, we could actually then go on to organize lots of workers into unions. And that's exactly what the story was um, in Stanford and Connecticut 20-something years ago. 31 out of 32 NLRB elections, a ton of strikes and some amazing contracts built off the back of us understanding that working class people have issues beyond the shop floor. Um, so I, organized the, I, I argue that the class can go out and organize the entire community themselves. Um, and I'm just going to show, OK, that's how you do it. You know, you make a little forum. Workers go talk to each other. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that now. It begins to look like that. But the same method of systematically charting workers, talking to workers about who knows who, what are all those social connections they have. And then we start to team people up. And the last thing I want to show is um, that one of the last mechanisms or methods that I personally have moved to in the labor movement and many other people around is that an extension of the we need to reintroduce ourselves to the rank and file workers to our own communities that we live in if we want to get really massive support and build the kind of campaigns that stop gentrification and win great wages and pensions um, is that we began to shift all of our negotiations into big community centers and into the big churches and temples and mosques, the ones that our members actually attended. Key to this is that the workers are the center of the model. Um, so I'm going to end on that uh, picture, which is um, me uh, last year in negotiations um, at Mount, that is at Mount Airy Baptist Church. And Mount Airy Baptist Church is one of the biggest black churches in the city of Philadelphia. And we held lots of negotiations there. The minister at that church had no, no relationship to the labor movement. He didn't think he liked the labor movement. He didn't know what a union was. He was super skeptical that unions were any good at all because there's a big history of racism um, in the building trades in a lot of our big cities. Um, and when I was talking about organic leadership earlier, I mean that there's a way to do organic leadership in the broader community too, which is if we're in a hard fight, 
and we've mapped that a ton of workers, out of a thousand workers, you know, 700 of them go to church X, Y, or Z, or temple X, Y, or Z, or mosque X, Y, or Z. Um, the religious leaders that we, in the labor movement, tend to talk to are also like the activist religious leaders, and not the equivalent of the organic leaders who have power. And we're trying to build power. So the method here is about helping us understand which connections our members, rank and file workers, have already, and then having some way to analyze power structure in the broader community so you know which are the religious institutions in the case of religion, which are the community institutions in the case of which are the football clubs, which are the whatever, that are actually powerful with their own huge networks. And then we zero in on those ones and have the workers themselves make the introductions to their community, faith, religious, etc., sports clubs, halls, leaders. And then we strategically move our open negotiations around to all of the centers in the community, get out of big hotels, get out of little private places, bring everyone in, and it's a key way that we actually build strategic relationships in the broader community um, with potential allies that we would never have otherwise um, had. I think the biggest thing we have to do to stop the austerity that's going to come again, coming again, right here, um, is going to be to stop bifurcating between workers and the community, see workers as the center of struggle, um, both at work and in their own communities. Um, think about the principles of organic leadership identification um, and how can we make everything into a structure. As an organizer for me, whatever I do, I'm trying to figure out a structure so I can test is what I'm doing moving towards majorities or are the same 12 people showing up because we're not going to win with the same 12 or even 100 people. Um, austerity, I almost feel like someone here else should answer it, but austerity is faking the idea. It's a lie. It's a word and it's a lie and it's put out by the political elite, the corporate elite and the politicians that they back. Um, and it essentially says, oh, we're broke. There's not enough money to go around anymore. There just isn't enough tax money anymore. So we have to make a lot of cuts in all public services. And we have to start that by cutting workers' wages who work in government jobs. Um, and then that's not going to be good enough to keep the people rich who want to be rich, um, taking more and more percent of everything that there is in life and society. So they're going to start making cutbacks on this library. And the library's hours are going to go from whatever they are now to like, it's going to be open from 12 noon to 3 on a good day. Um, and they start to cut everything. And the transit workers are going to go because they're going to start cutting back on the number of buses we have and the number of trains we have. And it's all a frickin' lie. It's a constructed lie called austerity. Um, there's plenty of money. If the rich people would pay their fair share of taxes and the corporations would pay their fair share of taxes, there's plenty of money. Plenty of money. So our challenge is how do we actually build sufficiently to majorities to keep the crap from happening. Um, and we're pretty full on on it in the U.S. and, and here too in a lot of provinces. So um, now to Josh's question of like, so he works in a less structured, I'm just going to say a less structured environment. Um, you said minimum wage workers, for example. So um, I had an organizer, I'm going to tell you a story about Kristen. She was an organizer with me on that Vegas, in Nevada on the Vegas campaign. And she learned like workplace charting and structure tests and workplace charting and how to find the leader. And then she moved home to the state of Vermont. And she got working for a different union. And she got assigned organizing rural child care workers. Okay, rural <laughs> child care workers who work in their homes, one worker for four kids allowed by Vermont law. If you have a little assistant or helper, you can have six kids in your house. So Kristen goes from 
um, working with me on the Vegas teams and big hospitals and big public sector units. And she finally really gets organic leader ID and her structure test down, and she knows who the leader is, who can in fact move hundreds of other people. And, and she starts to do rural child care organizing. And she calls me up, as so many former staff of mine do, and leaders, and starts screaming at me. God damn it, McAlevey, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work anymore. Uh, that was a real phone call. Um, she would admit it, too, if she was standing right here, like freaking out on me, unraveling. It doesn't work. It only works in a big structure. And I was like, OK, that's good, Kristen. So first, you have to calm down, and then we're going to talk it through. So I've never organized child care workers in rural Vermont. I, you know, I, I don't live in rural places. I live in bigger places. OK, fine. So I started thinking about the principle. This is the principles and the methods question. The principle is we think that some workers have respect of other workers at a higher level than any other worker. Well, how are we going to figure that out when it's one worker with four kids spread all over a godforsaken state with more cows than people? Like, I could do leader ID with the cows, maybe definitely with the farmers. But anyway, so how are we going to do it with childcare workers? So I said to Kristen, after like 45 minutes of brainstorming, I said, well, how about this? How about this? Just to try and figure out leader ID in a very different context, a structureless context, effectively. We found out that there were two questions we could ask that quickly worked for her in the campaign. The first is, she'd be sitting down with a child care woman who was basically a homemaker in her home who might have her own kid and then three more, right, that she was bringing in to make some money. Um, and the question that we learned to ask them was the following. When your house is full, who do you send the overflow kids to? Because you're immediately going to hear the person, the other child care provider that that child care, home-based child care provider respects. Well, if that person's place is full, where are you going to send them? So the principle was, is there a way to figure out how to do leader ID in a very open, different kind of setting? And then the second question was, hey, you know, if you had to put your kids into a home-based child care center, whose house would you put them in? So after 45 minutes of brainstorming, we found two questions that got us to thinking very differently about organic, that there, is some, that there are some people who have more respect than others, even though it might be harder to do in a rural child care campaign, the same principle applies. And charting began to work in the same way, similarly, but it was just, a, you know, it didn't look exactly the same, but the same concept applied. So, and if I was doing anti-poverty organizing, just to pick up on that thread, I think as an organizer, since I've learned over like 30 years of work now, that when I can figure out how to create a structure, I can figure out how to figure out who the organic leaders are better. My task as an organizer is to make structure everywhere I go. I just want to start to build a structure. So how can I structure it up? If I was doing anti-poverty work, I would probably identify going into, or you mentioned tenants, you know, tenant housing. Um, I would start by going into a public housing complex and say I'm going to dig in here and I'm going to build a committee here. And I'm going to build the committee by sitting down with folks who want to have better housing. I'm going to turn that public housing unit into the first anchor of a structure-based campaign. That's actually about ending poverty. But I'm going to do it, so I'm going to look for structure and create structure where I can, so that I then can figure out what's the organic leader identification method, so I can then figure out how can we scale up in a campaign to actually try to end poverty faster than just doing a lot of things, and I'm not implying in any way that you are, but then, then just doing things that we just keep doing that aren't actually building power. So if I want to scale up as an organizer, there's a million challenges a day, I'm going to try and figure out how can I create structure where structure seems not to exist. I'm going to take all the low-wage workers in these five blocks, 
and I'm just going to dig into these five blocks and start figuring out, right? So whatever it is, like literally my challenge as an organizer, I feel like, besides teaching fundamentally, is to create structure where I don't see one, is to actually forge structure so that we can figure out are the things we do making a difference? Because I don't want to not make a difference in the work. So it's the principles of organic leader identification, and it's the concept of create structure even if you don't see it. Um, and, tr and keep trying to apply the method that way. Um, so, um, uh, a few things. Um, first on fear, I'm just going to go backwards. Fear is central. Fear is everything. Fear is how Donald Trump just divided the working class from each other in the United States of America. Fear is fear. Fear is everywhere in the U.S. And it's why, um, Vicki, that I'm so obsessed with organic leader identification. Because the only person I know who can get a lot of really scared people through a really scary moment is someone who they really trust. Period. Every really tough union campaign, I relearn the same lesson. When the boss says, you put that union sticker on and we're going to fire you, I got no shot at persuading some worker I've just met to keep a sticker on. But who can actually get them to keep the sticker on is the coworker that they respect the most in that workplace who looks at them and says, I'm putting mine on and if we all do it together, we're going to be safe, we're going to be okay. So that's like, that's why organic leader identification is so fundamental in really serious fights, is that it's the, and that's why in the structure tests, we start to escalate what I call the risk factor. We're escalating the risk factor because we're testing, do the, can the leaders actually pull them through fearful moments and increasingly fearful moments. So that's a very big one. Um, it's strength in numbers. And I would just say quickly on that, I think a lot of unions, um, including probably everyone I've ever worked for and with, um, at some point does something um, very normal. And when I say it, no offense meant, because a lot of us do it all the time. We do things like Friday is union t-shirt day, um, or Monday is union wear your lanyard day, or something like that. Um, and we've never actually built a tight structure or an effective workplace structure with high unity. And so what we do, and the Chicago teachers are doing this before they rebuilt the union, um, what we're showing the boss is how weak we are. So you're putting something on, and there's a handful of people doing it in a workplace, and all you're telegraphing to the employer is, Jesus, that's the only number of workers putting on their T-shirt. I'm in good shape. I'm going to kick their ass in the next contract. Or I'm going to go you know, fondle whoever I want to in the closet because there's no one here who's going to do anything about it. So that's why structure tests matter so much. Um, but it's really why organic leaders matter. Fear is everywhere. And I'm going I'm to pitch from fear around the question that you raised to fear in DACA and sanctuary cities. Um, a couple things that are really important. We definitely don't call it network analysis. Like that might be in the PhD program, but like when we're out working with workers, it's just who do you know? It's just who do you know, right? Um, really seriously, it's a very open question. It's like explaining we don't have enough power to make the changes you want to make right now. We have a choice about whether or not to surrender to a crap raise and having your pension taken away, or you yourselves have a choice about how to make a decision to go involve your community in this fight. So it isn't like some weird thing where they're filling out forms and like it's a network analysis and a database and like Trump is going to come get it. It's like a bunch of Sharpie markers on charts and they're rolled up in the back of the car and you'd have to fight a lot of people to get those charts out of your hands, right? So it's information that workers themselves are conveying and transmitting. Um, and it's not going into some huge database like the DACA program did that you're referring to. And then sanctuary cities and like a labor in the U.S. I mean, um, you know, there's a handful of unions that are probably, frankly, bankrolling 
some of the best sanctuary cities and sanctuary states work, like in California where I live half the time. Um, uh, there's three or four unions and the California Federation of Labor who are frankly literally at the center um, of financing and running and helping the sanctuary state movement because I live in the only state where we're about to make it a sanctuary state and run Trump's people right out of the goddamn jails and police forces and everything else. So, um, and then of course there's some right-wing unions who I'm sure are just being horrible, you know, and handing in whoever Tom, Dick, and Harry they want to, but that's not most unions. I think, it, I think we're at the point in the States, thank goodness, thanks to a lot of people overcoming their fear for the last 20 years in the immigrant rights movement, um, that most of the progressive unions, or even unions that might not self-identify as progressive, most unions are on the right or the correct side of the sanctuary fight in our country. And it took a long time to get us there and a lot of people having that battle to get us there. Um, but so that's a short, but fear is huge right now. Fear is massive. It's everywhere. Um, even in California, where I made the mistake of feeling like in the first month of Trump, I thought, well, we're cool out here. I kept saying to a bunch of people I worked with, like, everyone's okay in California. And then the troops came right in and began to pull undocumented um, workers right out of schools. They'd go in for a clinic visit in a hospital, and the cops would come in and pull them out of a hospital bed and take them to the border, right? So fear is high. Um, and we're only going to win if we're doing it in huge numbers, and that's why we need the organic leaders, which in the case of the sanctuary movement is a union leader. Sometimes it's their pastor, their priest, their church leader. Sometimes it's whoever it is who you look to who makes you feel safe when you're about to do something super scary and do it with a lot of people. Um, and that's the role of sort of finding the natural leaders. Um, and then on the question about training, I think it's such a big question, um, but I want to say two quick things. It is true that building structure can be similar to political campaigns, but I want to say the risk factor is really different. When you're working a riding to win an election, your hardest ask is to get someone to come take a secret vote. When you're trying to get people to go on a 100% out strike when there's tens of thousands of workers, it's a hell of a lot harder than trying to get them to take a secret ballot vote in their polling place. But you're right that the concept is the same. That's a structure as you're riding. I just want to put the risk factor in there, and it's why the organic leader thing becomes so important. Because scary things and risky things require people that people trust to get them to, like, vote with their feet and give up their jobs and their money for weeks on end, um, uh, which is, I think, political work and writings is similar, having done lots of it, um, but it is not the same as either a ton of immigrants surfacing themselves when the cops are coming and saying, you're not taking me and my whole family and my community, or you're going to have to take 10,000 of us, you know, or a strike. But the concepts are right, and I loved your comment about the food bank. Food is completely political, last I looked. Um, uh, but on the training question, um, it's constant, it's endless, it's nonstop. Every structure test, in my view, is training. Um, the main thing I want to say about your question about training is that this is a really important principle to me in the principles of work. Um, I don't train full-time staff any differently than I train rank-and-file leaders. Um, and a test of mine when I was doing the PhD and I was collecting people's training programs is it was really fun to do, you know, and I had that time just to like, oh, be like nerdy researcher. And I was calling a bunch of organizations and I'd say, can you please send me the training materials that you use um, for the rank and file and the grassroots and then the training materials that you use for the staff? And I just said that really innocently to see if they said, Oh, okay. And then I would get these like Donald Duck with cartoons baby crap that they use to train the grassroots activists 
or the rank and file with like cartoons and all these silly things. And then these like wicked serious training manuals for the full-time staff and it would like make me want to put a bullet through my head. So um, the main thing I'm gonna say about training is it's constant, it's often, and there's no difference. Like if we're trying to build an army to stop austerity and beat the people who are ruining the world, um, there is no difference. I don't see the intelligence of someone who happens to be on full-time staff as any different than the intelligence of really smart workers um, in a big campaign. So for me, it's constant, it's often, it's because as I said when I got here, we don't go through school, even teachers and educators, like if you're a nurse in nursing school, no one teaches you how to build a high, uh, high unity and high structure and kick your boss's ass. Like we don't get taught that, right, in any context in our world. And so the idea that we don't need to do training and teach it constantly to me is, um, it's just wrong, um, but that we have to teach it equally to everyone all the time is what's right. So there is no difference between what are we teaching like, the, oh, we don't think they're that smart, grassroots people come to a meeting tonight, versus like how we like training up, you know. So if you're on my teams, the workers will tell you this, the staff will tell you it, and yawn and freak out and be like, oh, Jesus, she's going to do a semantics test again today. Because I walk into the office every day and I walk into negotiations, committee rooms with hundreds of workers, and I'm like, boss is going to say this, what are you going to say? And like we drill, we literally do something called semantic drills. A few workers who are with me today um, got the beginning of what semantic drills look like, but I mean they were fun, weren't they? Um, but um, literally we do drill, like we do, we do training drills every day on how to be effective in our communications and how we actually understand how to talk with workers so that they themselves understand if they don't take action, they're not going to win. Um, and that the staff can't do it for them. Um, so training is big and real, um, and it should be applied equally. That's my general feeling.